The following message is brought to you by Blue Ridge Christian Church in Mills River, North Carolina, helping people find their home in God. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit www.blueridgecc.org. We're going to be looking at the book of Micah today, so um, I'm going to give you like 10 minutes to uh, find it. Uh, so uh, while, while you're turning to Micah, uh, or turning to the table of contents, um, I want to make you aware that uh, we're going to have a, just a real, real, real short meeting for those who are interested. Uh, Steph back here is hitting up a trip. Wave, everybody wave at Steph. Hi, Steph. All right. Um, she has a lot of power to ruin my slides, so we're always nice to Steph. Um, and uh, uh, she is hitting up a trip in, is it in the summer? Yes. The summer. Uh, it's, what was it? All right, first of August, uh, you guys go camping right, right, is it right on the beach, I think it is, right, like last year? On the lake, that's right, but there's like a little sandy beach area, so, uh, yeah, they go down this lake, they camp out for, for a couple days, if that's something you're interested in, like, hey, I like camping, maybe I want to get to know some of the other ladies in the church, or I'm just up for an adventure, uh, meet with Steph after church, she'll be hanging out back there, just kind of pull yourselves over there, and uh, she'll be happy to tell you about the trip, when it is, and whatever, basically. It is ladies only. Yeah, so sorry. It is, right? Ladies only, right? That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. I'm speaking for Steph over here. Uh, yep, ladies only. So, fellas, you got to think of something cooler to do um, because, you know, we got to figure out something. Okay, Micah 1, we're going to do the whole chapter. All right? Seatbelts on, ponchos on. Ready? Let's go. All right, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Here's the vision. Hear, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath them and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will be used again. Because of this, I will weep and wail I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. And it's spread to Judah. It has reached the very gates of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Saphir. Those who live in Sa'an will not come out. Beth Azel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Marath writhe in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. 
You are where the sin of the daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marshah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adlum. Shave your heads in the morning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. What a, what a Sunday to show up for. <laughs> uh, you're probably like, man, I'm, I'm ready to hear, like, love your neighbor and, you know, God is love and hug a friend. And, yeah, okay, yeah, Micah won the whole chapter. I mean, is Micah even in the Bible? Did you even find it? Micah is typically called a minor prophet. And that's because his book is relatively small. Now, he's not as long, as lengthy as Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel's grand books. We've got these little, these little guys that are tucked in here. But even though his, his book is relatively small, his message is so very big. Because deep down in all of us, we know that at least the world at large, and maybe even ourselves, are off. Things could be much, much better than they currently are. Maybe I look at myself inwardly and I know I could be much better than I really am. Micah explores what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with us? He even shows us how to move forward as a people of fairness and mercy and goodness. And good grief, if you don't think the world, much less ourselves, could use a little bit of fairness and mercy and justice, then maybe this isn't for you. So you can pull your phone out, Facebook it up, I don't know. But for the rest of us, Micah's message is very relevant. And I know sometimes we get to these, these Old Testament books, and man, we, we see these lists of names that just sound like we sneezed and, and coughed at the same time. And, and it's hard, and it doesn't make much sense to us. But this morning, I'm going to try relatively hard to help Micah 1 make some sense to us. And in order to build on this, next week, guess what? We're going to be Micah 2. So if you've got a bookmark now want to save yourself some time, just slap it right down uh, in your Bible. Uh, Micah 1, I know, I know. It's not super positive. It's not super fuzzy. It's actually kind of bleak and uh, whoa, right? You, you get this accusation from the Lord. I mean, pretty much. Uh, did you have a sibling growing up? If you had a sibling and you and your sibling are fighting, uh, there's that one thing that they could, could yell that would cause deep panic in, in your heart, right? Remember what it was? Mom! <laughs> Dad! <laughs> and your sibling or your friend would immediately, no, 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 don't call Dad, don't call Mom, because you knew if Mom or Dad had to get up and come up the stairs, down the stairs, outside, wherever, it ain't going to be good. Pleasant words aren't coming out, right? Justice and not mercy will be dispensed swiftly. And this is kind of a picture of what's going on in Micah, right? He says at the very beginning, he's like, listen, God is up and he's getting ready to leave his throne and start treading upon the earth. Things have gotten so bad that God's coming into the room to make things right. And he does this by saying, here's, here's the main thing that's going wrong 
in the country of Judah back then. Because by this time, civil war has happened. The nation of Israel has been split. Israel went up north. Judah remained down south. It was ten tribes, two tribes. Now now I'm losing everybody. But uh, Israel had been wiped off by an army. Now Judah is down here. And we're wondering, like, you know, what's going to happen to Judah? They're doing the same things that their their brothers were doing up north. And they're going to get judged just like their brethren did. So Micah has a warning through the inspiration of the Lord for his people. And the chief complaint is idolatry. Here's what's wrong with the people. Here's what they're experiencing right now is deep, deep, deep idolatry. It's running rampant throughout the text and throughout the people. So first, we're going to see God's judgment for idolatry. We're going to see our own attachment to idolatry. And then we're going to see the rescue from idolatry. Judgment, attachment, and rescue. So first, the judgment for idolatry. Do you see what happens in verse 3? It says, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. Literally, it means he comes to walk upon the high places. Now, that's significant because in the ancient Near East, uh, people would go and worship their god or gods on the high places. You would go to these mountaintops, these hillsides, because you thought you would, in a sense, be closer to your God, and you would set up your altars, and you would sacrifice, and you would bow down, and you would worship. And if you needed a God to rain on your crops, you go to that hill, and you bow down to that God, please help me rain. If, if you needed kids, you go to the gods of fertility, and you bow down on their hill and, and ask gods to, to bless them. And so here Micah is saying, listen, the God, the one and only God, is coming down, and he's going to start stomping on all of these hills that you've set up, all of these shrines, all of these altars, all of these places of idolatry, he has come to squash. Now, Judah, God's people, were supposed to be different. They weren't supposed to be like the other civilizations of the ancient Near East and setting up their places of worship on the high places. Do you remember where God's people were supposed to set up their worship? It was in Jerusalem. By this time, they had a temple that had been constructed, an Ark of the Covenant. They had a priesthood. They had this whole system. And this is where they were to connect and commune with God. Now, the the strange thing is that Jerusalem still stood. The temple was still intact. The priests were still offering sacrifices. And yet, here's what we get. We get this this mixture, this coexistence of people who are supposed to be following God saying, yes, we still follow God. Yes, we are God's people. Yes, we are God. Our God is the God who took us out of Egypt. That is our God. But we also have this God over here and that God over there. And, you know, my sister, she's got a tummy ache, so I'll pray to the God who took us out of Egypt, but I'll also go over to pray to this God because I'm just going to cover my bases. Because what harm can it do? And this is the idolatry that the people of Judah were experiencing. They had set up and constructed altars throughout all all of the countryside. And they were having this coexistence of deities, which runs right in contrast with the very first commandment that God gives his people. Do you remember what it was in Exodus 20, verse 3? Number one, rule number one, right? You shall have no other gods before me. 
This is all the way back when God rescues his people out of Egypt. And they barely know him. It's like a really long, drawn-out first date. And it's like, let's, let's get to know each other. Let's sit down and have a powwow. And he says, okay, here, here is how uh, you're going to identify yourself as my followers. Here's what, what are the rules that for engagement. And now you might think, what, are, what do we need rules for engagement? You do this when you marry somebody, right? You stand up and you have vows with them and say, I promise to love you, even though you gain a thousand pounds, even though you have tusks coming out of your nose, you know, I, well, you know whatever it is, like, you know, whether this like six figure job turns into a one figure job, you know, I promise to love you, right? Now you're all thinking back to your vows, like, did he leave out the tusk part? No. Uh, because if you, if, you, if, you, if you just say like, Conditionally, like, hey, I'll only love you as long as you make a certain amount of money, as long as we live close to my parents, as long as you provide me with children, as long you're having a very conditional relationship. You're saying, these are the conditions on which our existence uh, uh, is created. Like my wife and I, when we got married, we set limits, right? Everybody, hopefully everybody does this when they get married. You say, you know, I will, I will be with no other person except you. Isn't that so limiting? Yeah, it's limiting, but you limit yourself because you love them. God is saying, listen, if you love me, you will have one God, not many gods. You will not, and the text even kind of alludes to this, prostitute yourself out to other gods to get what you need from them, when really what you need is from me. Do not have any other gods before me. And look at how this makes God feel. This makes God feel angry and you won't like him when he's angry right you know that's what we think you might think man i don't like the idea of an angry god yes you do here's why let's imagine for a second that um you know your whole life having a beer is no big deal right having a glass of wine at the end of the day no big deal no harm, nothing's destroying, the world's not falling around, uh, around you. But then your son grows up, right? And they don't have the self-control that you have. And they begin to drink, but they can't control it. And alcoholism begins to take root in them, and it begins to tear down their health. You start to see it in their life, and, in their, and it starts to tear down their, their job and their career and their path and their goals and their dreams. It starts to tear down the relationship that, that your son has with his spouse and with his children. And you start to see this, this alcoholism just weave and work its way all throughout your son, your beautiful son, and it's destroying him. Do you love your son? The answer is yes. Yes. How do you feel about alcoholism? You hate it. You hate it. And even though it's something that you could tolerate and it never really grabbed a hold of you, you might start thinking differently about even keeping some in the house. You might start looking at it differently because of what it's done to somebody else. And you might just start something that you thought was a comfort to you in the evenings. Now it's something that you despise because you've seen how it was totally destroyed and wrecked someone you loved. When God looks at his people who are engaging in idolatrous practices, he's not saying, ah, that's okay, it's no big deal. It burns them up on the inside. Because when you engage in this practice, it's destroying you. You're unraveling. 
You're, you're, you're engaging in things. It's just tearing you and the fabric of this world apart. Much like an alcoholic who engages in, in drinking tears his life apart. God's angry because he cares. I mean, let's go back to the alcoholic. If, if you saw your son doing that, and his life just being just, 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 just imploding on itself, would a loving parent say, ah, it's no big deal. It'll work itself out. You know, we all got our problems. We all got our issues. Your indifference, your ability to just shrug it off or just, just let it go, really shines a light on the depth of your love and care for that person. That's why, likewise, when God looks at us, if he was just like, ah, no big deal, oh, they're sinning, oh, they're doing stuff, oh, they're hurting each other, oh, they're hurting themselves, they're destroying their relationships, ah, it's no big deal, then God's love is very small. He's mostly just indifferent to us, not really caring what we do to ourselves and to one another. But because God gets angry when we destroy ourselves, when we hurt one another, when we hurt our relationship with him, it's, it's, it's not despite his love, it is in light of his love for us. So I know we don't like the idea of God getting angry, but I hope just in the three minutes here, we can at least start entertaining that maybe he's so angry because he loves us so much. Now, you might think of somebody who's done something terrible because I'm doing this because I love you so much. God's love is perfect and will not lead to ultimately harm you. But humanity sometimes can do a lot of harm in the name of love, and that's not okay. So if that's your experience, if somebody has hurt you and said, I do this because I love you, that's not okay. We are not God. We are not perfect. God gets angry, and God wants to restore his people. And you might not see it, but by the time we get to the end of this today, I hope I can show you the least glimmer of hope that's given to us here in Micah 1. All right, so idolatry, running rampant in the people. And by the way, have you ever noticed, I mean, uh, of the Ten Commandments, you don't break any of the other nine without first breaking number one. All other, all the sins, the coveting of the neighbor's stuff, the adultery, every other sin uh, listed in the Ten Commandments starts with having a God above the God of the Bible. Myself, my spouse, we'll get into this. Let's go into this. Uh, Our attachment to idolatry. You might think idolatry is a problem for people a thousand years uh, before us, a few continents removed from us. But while it's true we don't climb mountains and set up altars to worship, it doesn't mean that we don't have altars set up in other places. Here's a brief definition uh, from Stephen Um. His last name is U-M, yeah. Idolatry uh, is giving ultimate allegiance, which deserves to be given to God, to another object of worship, another object of affection. It's giving your ultimate allegiance to anything other than God. It could be your nationality. It could be a a political affiliation. It could be your own individual freedom or expression. It could be your sexuality. It could be your path to success. It could be your comfort. It could be your values. It could be family. It could be your traditions. Anything that you give your allegiance to ultimately above God becomes an idol. You remember back when we had to go through that whole list of cities, verses 10 through 15? It's this long list of cities and what's going to happen to them. You might think, really, what's going on there? And it's actually, Micah is being pretty cute. 
He's looking at each of these cities, because in the, in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, names meant something. You know, today, like, oh, I want to name my kid, you know, Pumpkin Spice, because it's cute and whatever. Uh, names always, like, carried with them much more weight than we give names today. Names back then were very significant. So each of these towns means something. Like, Beth Ophra means house of dust. And do you remember what uh, uh, Micah says? He says, listen, you're going to roll in the dust. When he gets to Saphir, I mean, we could go through all of them. I'm just going to give you three. Saphir, he's like, uh, which means beauty town in ancient Hebrew. What does he say to them? Remember, it says, you will live in nakedness and shame. In Za'an, that means going towards town, right? You're going out, right? Going to, he says, you will not come out. The freedom that you have, the, the audacity you have to go forward, it will not happen. Pretty much he's just saying, like, if your town means beautiful, you're not going to be beautiful. If your town means powerful, you're not going to be powerful. If your town means, like, full bellies, you're going to have starved bellies. He's going through each of these towns, and he's saying, the thing that you are known for, the identity of your town, is actually going to become undone. The thing that gives you distinction the thing that sets you apart from every other town. If you live by it, you will die by it. I mean, for us, let's bring this into the 21st century here, right? Is that where we are? I think it's where we are. Present day, if you live by your looks, you will die by your looks. If... If, 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 if you being the prettiest person, if, if your day rises and falls when people compliment you or don't compliment you, I got bad news for you. You are on a clock. This, guys, is not going to get better, okay? We're not a fine wine. <laughs> Looks fade. And you're going to find yourself grasping after them, grasping after... I mean, think of Hollywood for a second, because it's a little bit easier to laugh at people who are further away from us and more extreme than us, but not so far removed from us. When you ever see somebody on TV who you know has had like 8,000 surgeries, right? Like, I'm 79 years old. You know, you're like, what? (laughs) And they look so plastic and so fake. you got to think, all right, do they realize how ridiculous they look? And then the next question is, how not? How do they not? Because underneath, they are driving themselves, I have to look younger and better and more attractive day in and day out. And there will come the day when there is not enough surgery under heaven to help you. What about our success? If you're driven by your success, if you live and die for success or the next acquisition or the next promotion, then look, you will always be threatened. You will always be looking over your shoulder over the younger, faster, smarter employer, employee who's coming right on your heels because they're chasing the same God that you're chasing and they're going to be as cutthroat and ruthless as you were, if not more. What about our children? My identity, my hope rises and falls on my children. Oh, I hope they're successful. I hope they make good choices. I hope they love me. I hope they're around for me. I hope they take care of me when I can't take care of myself. And then they disappoint you. Because children will disappoint you. Likewise, parents. They can disappoint you. They might not be satisfied enough with how hard you've worked or all that you've done or the job that you took or the spouse that you choose. 
Idols can be everywhere today, not just on our high places. And every single person in this room, we have one high place where an idol always sits, and that's our hearts. We all construct little altars right here on our hearts, and we place our idols on there, and we put our hopes and our dreams and everything inside of them. So let me tell you how to find them. I'm just going to give you uh, four quick ways to find them, okay? Uh, these are little exercises that you can do for yourself. So maybe you want to write this down, maybe not. If you want, we can talk about it later. First question you ask yourself, what do I daydream about? Where does my mind go effortlessly? Think about that when you're stuck on I-26. What does your mind default to? A better job? A better place? A better home? A better life? Really, when you're daydream, whatever you daydream about could be a great indicator of what an idol is in your heart. Because what you're really saying is, oh, what do we do with our daydreams? Life would be so much better. The stars would be in alignment. The roadways would part. Money would be found on the floor. If only I had that. What is that? Whatever it is for Chuck, it's going to be different for Bayard. But we all have something we think, ah, life would be so much better if I could just have even just a little bit more of this. What are you daydreaming about? What will set your life right? Number two, where does your money effortlessly go? You know, like, there are some things, it's, it's stupid to me, how hard it is for me to write a check to some things. Water bill, do we really need running water this month? <laughs> but there are other things. Like eating out. Just sign it. Here's my card. Take my money. Let's eat. You get a lunch. You get a lunch. Let's all do it together. Effortlessly goes. It's really hard to let go. Where does your money just effortlessly go? Is it hobbies? Is it gambling? Is it a project of yours? Now, listen. I could get you real hot water and say, name where your spouse this is money effortlessly, effortlessly goes, right? It's just two words, right? Hobby and lobby, right? That's where it all goes. Um, <laughs> I've been praying against that sort. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, number, number three, uh, where do uncontrollable emotions show up? Where do uncontrollable, like, you know, we have our emotions, hi, happy, I'm sad, or whatever, and then we have those days, I have no idea why I'm this side, or holy cow, I didn't expect myself to get this mad. Where is that showing up? Is it at work? Is it with your spouse? Is it with your kids? What, what's triggering these things could definitely be an idol in your heart. Last one, what are my deepest nightmares about? What are the things that wake me up in the middle of the night and I just can't go to sleep and my mind is just harping on that one thing? Dear God, please don't take that one thing from me. Is it your health? Dear God, please don't confine me to a wheelchair. Please, 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 please. I can't, I can't, I could, I, I don't even think I'd want to go on living if I didn't have that. Things that you say make you feel like, you know, I'm not complete, I'm not whole, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not who I'm supposed to be if I don't have that thing. What's the nightmare? Is it that your kids would reject you? Is it that your parents would disappoint you? Is it that you would fail your children? Is it that you would be stuck in the same job and never get promoted? 
These are hard questions to ask, but man, are they powerful for rooting out the idols that sit in our heart and often take the place of God. So how do we remove them? What is the rescue from idolatry? I mean, listen, Micah chapter one is kind of grim, not going to lie. But the overall book of Micah is one of hope of deliverance and restoration. And even though chapter 1 doesn't feel like it, Micah gives us a little bit of a hint. And now that we're Christians and can look at the Bible from the you know, 30,000 foot view, we can see great hope in it. Here's how. In, um, in uh, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, the very beginning of this passage... This uh, Old Testament commentator, Bruce Walkey, he talks about this section as a call to a legal trial. It follows all of the patterns of, of, of our documents of ancient Near East trials, right? By this, verse 2, we have a summons. Hey, you're, you're coming to court. Do you remember uh, uh, what verse, uh, verse 2 says? Hear, you people, all of you, uh, listen, earth, and all who live in it. So here's the summons. Then we have this uh, punitive statement, right? Like, hey, here's what's going to happen if you're found guilty, and this is what the punishment's going to be in verse 4. Verse 5, we have the accusation against Samaria and Jerusalem. And by verse 6, we have the sentence. Here's what's going to happen, you being found guilty. How does Micah respond? I mean, Micah's kind of set this picture of this courtroom situation, and Micah is there in verses 8 and 9, and he jumps in into this part of the book, right? Because all of this is God speaking, God speaking, God speaking. Now, like, the Lord will do this, the Lord will do that, the Lord will do this. And now Micah shows up, and what does he say? He says in verse 8 and 9, Because of this, the judgment, the courtroom, the judge, the, the guilty, because of this, I will weep and wail I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl for, for Samaria's plague. It's, it's incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. He's looking at what happened in Samaria and the idolatry and the practices that would happen there. He's seen it come all the way down to the front doors of Jerusalem. And he says, there's nothing I can do about it. I weep and I wail and I feel so powerless. I'm in this courtroom and, and what the judge is saying is absolutely right and his judgment is absolutely perfect and, and I can't do anything to stop it. You know what Micah's name means? It's like a Hebrew question. Micah means who is like our God. And to Micah, he did not have an answer to that question. His name was a reminder. There is no one like our God. But what about you? Do you have an answer to that question? Who is like our God? We do we say we know a person who is like God. Matter of fact, we know a person who was and is God. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus came into this world to say, I am the Lord who will become naked so that you can be clothed with my righteousness. Jesus says, I am the Lord who will be rejected so that you will be fully accepted and embraced. 
I am the Lord who will become unclean and contaminated by your idolatry so that you might be rescued from it. The judgment will fall on me, not on you. Jesus walks into the courtroom and says to the Lord Almighty, yes, they deserve it, but I will take it. Let my record of perfection be their record. Let their record of condemnation be mine. We will have a great reversal. I will take the punishment. I will bear it. Do you see Jesus Christ standing as our mediator before God? God, in his infinite love, his righteous anger, he should be mad at our adulterous and idolatrous hearts. But because of Jesus Christ, the wrath, the righteous and perfect wrath that we deserve does not fall on us, it fell on him. You see, there's a funny thing about idols. If you've got one on your heart, and you do the hard work of identifying it, and the Lord graciously helps you remove it, we are so very good at just taking one idol and putting another idol on top. Think about the cliche of a midlife crisis. What is happening? A man or a woman is realizing, I've spent 20, 30 years uh, in this marriage. I've spent 20 and 30 years uh, with these kids. I've spent, tw- well, maybe not. I've spent 20 or 30 years uh, in this job. I've spent 20 or 30 years in this place. And it's not giving me the things that I thought it would give me. They're not answering the deepest needs and longings of my heart. So what does a person do? They drop the family. They drop the spouse. They drop the job. They drop the city. They drop, they drop something and they chase after something else and they grab onto that because all they've really done is saying, this idol that I worshiped for so many years of my life did not give me what I want, so see you later. And I'm going to take this new idol and say, that will give me what I want. There's an endless factory in our hearts to produce idol after idol after idol. The only way to remove an idol and not have a vacuum there searching and sucking for another idol is to put something in its place that can ultimately satisfy you and give you the things that you've always longed for in your deepest level. And for us, we know it is Jesus Christ, God Almighty. Jesus Christ must sit on the throne of your heart and you must see his great love for you. You must see his great plan for you. You must see his great hope for you. You must see his great sacrifice for you. And the more you see what he has done for you and how he's done it and why he's done it, the easier it will be for you to flick off every other idol that tries to take its place. This is the picture of gospel, this courtroom scene, this advocate of Jesus. This is the power that will root out and dismantle all the appetites for the other objects of affections, both now and forever. Idols don't just vanish. They have to be replaced. 
We have to look at these things in our lives and say, you are not my life. You are not my security. You do not justify my existence or give my life meaning. Only Jesus Christ can do that. He gave that and he is that for me. When we sin in our lives, it's not because, oops, I just messed up. It's because I am giving my allegiance to something else at that time. I'm putting an idol on my heart and I begin to serve that idol. I am forgetting the great love, affection, distance that Jesus Christ has given to me. So this morning, as we engage in a time of communion, maybe you need to spend this time saying, Lord, show me the idols that are in my heart. And ask yourself those tough questions. What do I daydream about? What am I terrified about? Where does my money go effortlessly? And what do I... Maybe you need to spend time thinking about that and saying, Lord, show me the idols in my heart and by your grace, cast them out from me and put Jesus right there. Maybe as you hold the, the cup, that, the grape juice that represents his blood and you hold that little piece of bread that represents his body, maybe you just need to clench those a little bit harder, just a little bit firmer and say, Lord, I know you love me. I know you died for me. I know you gave everything to me, but my heart doesn't know it. I know the facts, I can pass the quiz, but I I don't feel it in my bones. Lord, by your grace, help me experience it. May what I know up here come down into here. Pray that prayer this this week with me. Because only when we see God clearly will he sit on our heart and not the idols that we so easily follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are my heart, I'm not excluded from anyone in here. My heart is constantly drawn to, to live and die on the opinion of my wife, the opinion of my children, the performance of my job, the, the, the status of my, of my house and, and bank account. Like, oh man, like I wish I had like one idol. I have so many, God, and it's such a wrestling match. And yet, Father. When I put my trust in you, when I rest in you, when I look to you, when I focus on you, Father, only then do I find what the Bible talks about as far as living water, as far as abundant life, as finding security and foundation and firmness and life. And so, Father, forgive me when I get so distracted so often. My prayer is not just for myself, but all of us here, Lord, that we can continually do the hard work of casting down the idols in our own lives and continually to put you on the throne of our heart because you alone are worthy of our worship, of worthy of our praise, of worthy of building our life around. So, Father, help us in that endeavor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.